The first annual Grenache Fest is in the books. That's a wrap. The event was incredible, and it got me thinking, how do we keep this Grenache party going? Well, I'll tell you how. Grenache study. Yeah, we are going to uh, study Grenache, but not like we used to in high school. This is more going to be a bunch of really cool people getting together with some really cool bottles of Grenache. And one of the best things about Grenache is there's Grenache Noir, Grenache Blanc, and Grenache Gris. So we're running the whole spectrum of wines here. Um, If you want to be in the know on the upcoming Grenache Study events for 2024, go to GrenacheStudy.com and get on the list so you'll be the first to know. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a Black Wine Guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest is the co-founder of Pay Vineyards, Andy Pay. Andy started Pay with his older brother, Nick, in 1996. They aimed to make American wines that captured a purity and unique sense of place, like the great wines they enjoyed drinking from the old world. In 1996, they purchased an old sheep ranch on a ridge overlooking the Pacific Ocean on the extreme west Sonoma coast, near Annapolis, where folks said it was too cold to ripen wine grapes, and they were the first to plant the region in 1998. Andy is a founder of the West Sonoma Coast Vintners and is one of the founders of the Sustainable Food Initiative at UC Berkeley Haas. Welcome, Andy. Thank you very much for having me, MJ. My pleasure, man. Uh, tell everybody about the wines we are drinking today. What'd you bring? So I brought a couple of wines that we've uh, released in the past year from the 21 vintage. 2021 was a great year. Uh, what that means in our world is uh, not too hot, not too cold, Goldilocks, so that uh, you have a really long hang time, you keep your acid, alcohols don't get elevated, and you can make wines that show the site and, and aren't you know, trying to get around anything else. So first wine that we have here is the 2021 West Sonoma Coast. So it's got West on the label, which is the first time you'll see West on a label is the 2021 vintage. Uh, before that, it was just the Sonoma Coast, but we got approval in May of 22. Uh, right before I printed, or actually it was right after I printed, but I printed anyway. Um, and so this is the 2021 West Sonoma Coast Chardonnay. And this is about 90% of state fruit, a little bit from a, a vineyard that we helped plant across the river from us, that uh, our shepherd, who supplies us 700 sheep in the spring, uh, he decided he wanted to diversify his, uh, his business and plant some grapes. And I said, well, you're going to diversify your revenue, not your profitability, but okay. And so now we buy a little bit of fruit from him. That's so good. Um, We're going to get into this a lot later, but just um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick a pin in West Sonoma because you know that was you're in town. Um, 
this isn't going to air for a few weeks, but you're in town. There's a an event with uh, Antonio Galoni from Vinyas. It's it's a AVA map. So we'll get into that a little bit later when we get into wine stuff. But we're going to dig into Andy's life. So let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Well, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, okay. uh, so uh, I uh, grew up in the eastern suburbs of Cleveland, which uh, if you're if you're from Cleveland, or if you know anybody from Cleveland, the east and the west near near cross. Uh, even though now these days all the, all the cool people live on the west side. So I'm not from Cleveland. I know um, Drew Carey's from Cleveland, but I don't know Drew Carey. Um, <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> not, okay. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, what what uh, what was it like growing up there, and and like kind of talk about that? Yeah, Cleveland yeah. was a great place to grow up. Um, <clears throat> big enough that you could uh, get into a little trouble, but not so big that you can get into too much trouble. Um, beautiful old homes. Uh, you know, Cleveland was uh, a major city in the early 1900s. Uh, the Industrial Revolution, steel production, all of that was going on. All the robber barons moved there for a while. So they built these beautiful homes, beautiful yards, good schools, um, and then, of course, left. Um, but uh, it was, uh, it is a really nice place to live and to grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the second I could leave, I did. That's everybody. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I met a lot of people from Cleveland, not in Cleveland. Right. <laughs> uh, but that's primarily because the weather's terrible. Yeah. But uh, the people are great. You know, it's the Midwest. People are really welcoming and nice. And if you go there and if you're new to the town, they will actually call you up and invite you over and be friendly. And the Midwest uh, is a thing. Uh, there, there's a behavior that, that's true, and that's one of the wonderful things about the U.S. is every region has its own personalities, and I hope accents. I hope we don't lose all our accents, and uh, yeah, so Cleveland's good. So you have, we know you have an older brother. How many siblings total? Just the two of you? Or? Nope, I have an eldest sister. She lives in uh, Manhattan. Okay. Yeah. All right. And like um, growing up, what's it like growing up? You're, so you're the baby. I am. Okay. Yeah. And and what's the, the age difference between the three children? So my brother is uh, about three and a half years older, and my sister is five and a half years old. Okay. So big sister. So she was running the show probably until, like, Nick got to, like, puberty, right? Is that – was it flipped or – well, I mean, you know, she, I think she was always running the show until she went to college. Really? She, yeah, she, I she, mean, she, yeah, she, you know, she's the first child. She was the very focused, great student, amazing tennis player. Uh, I've been told because I only have boys, but uh, I think t- typically she was uh, she was a little. Um, uh, her teenage years were volatile, you know, lot, lots of screaming. Yeah, uh, but. Uh, for the most part, uh, her name's Liz, is Liz, and uh, she was a great big sister to me because I was young enough yeah. that, I mean, I was her little brother, yeah. so it was all good. Yeah. You know, she told the older the older siblings of the guys who were picking on me to knock it off, Yeah, so that was good. <laughs> and, and, and Nick, what was that like? So you guys, you were probably like a freshman when he was a senior in high school, so you did get some time? No, we were just, just off. Just so off, when okay. I was a freshman, he was a freshman in college. Okay. So we were kind of out of cycle, and yeah. we're also pretty different people. Uh, and that's actually, you know, we'll get to it later, but that's actually a really uh, important uh, part of why we get along so well as, as business partners. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I was an athlete. I was more of the, the uh, seeking A's and approval and you want to go to the, this college or that college or whatever. And he was much more of the uh, laid back, uh, not as extroverted, but, uh, you know, smarter than I am, got better SATs than I did just because he's 
collective raw <laughs> intelligence is higher, but couldn't be bothered. <laughs> you know. So uh, yeah. And and you said you play sports. What 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 did you compete in? Uh, so uh, football was my, my primary sport, but also wrestling because the football coach was the wrestling coach. But right. that's actually turned out to be the most useful. I mean, from football, all I have is bad shoulders and bad knees. But from wrestling, yeah, I can still uh, pin my 15-year-old son who's my size. You can still take care of yourself. And, right. and Andy's not a – I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an average size, but Andy's not a little man. Um, what position did you play? Did Because I'm looking at you, I'm like, it, like, you probably played, like, guard or tackle. I mean – if you like, if you were going to play pro football, I'm like make about the size of a good tight end. Safety, yeah, safety or tight end, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. So I was very, very fortunate. So I went to a small prep school that wouldn't necessarily be known for football or any sport, okay. except for swimming. Um, but I happened to go uh, at the same time with this guy OJ McDuffie. And OJ McDuffie went on to be a name. pro, yeah. and uh, he was amazing. He was a man among boys playing the, on on, on the, the field. So, uh, you know, I was, I was co-captains with him, so I kind of led the line, offensive-defensive line. I was a guard. Yep. Uh, and I was kind of the polling guard because I, I had fairly good uh, agility. Not great, but, you know, good enough. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, we got to be undefeated all four years until we lost in the state champions our senior year in the, in the, in the Buckeye, uh, in the whatever they call that stadium. It's been a while. Oh, so you played – yeah, because football's big. It's Ohio. It's Ohio, man. Yeah, yeah they don't mess around. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. And so, you know, I, it, it helped me get into college. I played freshman football in college. And then I was like, they were like, okay, you need to gain 40 pounds. And I was like, mm, yeah. I'm not gaining 40 pounds. <laughs> I'm going to go play rugby because they seem to be having a really good time. Right, because they get, they take practice and then drink. <laughs> yeah, well, after the game, like after right. you've literally taken your cleats and raked it across somebody's back, you then get them a beer and you drink beers together. Yeah. I and mean, that sounds great. <laughs> so, speaking of which, um, and your parents, what did they do? So my dad uh, was a sales and marketing guy for mm-hmm. years, kind of running uh, various consumer package, not package goods. I mean, it was like you know, pots and pans and glassware okay. and stuff like that. And then in the mid-'70s, was playing on the market on the side and was like, I'm doing way better at this, and I hate. My dad is, w- was an engineer, introverted. He should not have been a salesperson. Yeah. And uh, he said, I, you know, I'm making a lot more money investing. So he quit, and he became a private investor in the mid-'70s and just – rode that uh, through the 80s and 90s. And my mom, my dad was also an opera singer. Shit. And so he started the Cleveland I'm Opera. I asked. <laughs> Wait, I'm glad I asked. So he started the Cleveland Opera. <laughs> so he started the Cleveland Opera with this guy, David Klein, the two of them. And uh, they uh, loved to sing. And they sang in the chorus for, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years. And then he ran the board and was a president for a long time. And so that was his true love. Yep. I uh, loved to invest, but really opera was it. And so my mom started out just helping run the benefits, the fundraising, which is an opera. That's all you're doing. Um, and she and another lady uh, had such a talent at it, they then turned that into a business. And so sometime, I think the early 90s, late 80s, when I went off to college, um, she started doing benefits and fundraisers for mostly sports teams and things. Uh, they were nonprofits, sp- focused on nonprofits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and then she did that until her mid-70s or so. So your dad was a day trader before it was a thing, and then your mom, your mom was an event planner before it was a thing. He would bristle at day trading. I know he would. He's the old school. He's yeah. A, he's the buy and hold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, you were talking about the Midwest. It's a real. It's a thing. What kind of food was did you eat growing up? Like just Amer- all American fare. I know there's immigrant influence in in, in that part of the country. Yeah. No. It's it's a great question because uh, a lot of 
and we didn't even prepare this. So a lot of what I'm, uh, I'm good at this. You are good at this. <laughs> so a lot of what I uh, account for uh, our interest uh, in wine comes from eating uh, mm-hmm. my mom's food growing up. Okay. So my mom. Uh, you know, in the, it's the early 70s, and so she's making her own granola. And she's, my dad was really into gardening, and so they had a huge vegetable garden. Uh, and uh, so we, we ate well. My mom was getting salmon, you know, from Alaska and other places, you know, through connections. She helped uh, found the Northeastern Farmers Market, Northeastern Ohio Farmers Market. She'd go out to Amish country to pick up the Amish people because they have the best chickens and stuff. Mm-hmm. And if she picked them up because they can't drive. Uh, she would get the first shot at the chicken. Uh, so she would pick them up, she'd get the first shot at the chicken, and then deliver them to the farmer's market. So we ate really well. But, um, so there, and there were periods. So yes, you kind of start with the standard Midwestern, you know, uh, roast chicken, things of that nature. But then my mom would go through a Chinese cooking phase, mm-hmm. and we would have Chinese food for a year. Mm-hmm. Or she went one time to France and uh, took classes with Patricia Wells, so French food was happening for a mm-hmm. while, and then mm-hmm. it was dessert. We'd have huge things, blocks of chocolate, three feet uh, by by four inches thick, in the pantry, which I would just you know gnaw. On. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, we we had a fairly diversified for the Midwest in the '70s and '80s uh, cuisine. That's so cool. I had a guest, Chef Tanya Holland, on, and. and her dad, I think, was an engineer. He worked for Kodak. So he lived in Rochester, but it's the same. It's a little bit older, same about our age. And, it, and there was something about the 70s. Like, there were these families, like, of people who experimented food. Like, her family were in a supper club, and they would, like, they'd have themes. Like, it'd be Hawaiian food, and, like, they'd go to the cookbooks. And, and so what we have here with the Pei family, so dad is a trader. I'm, I'm, I'm no, no day trading. Um, <laughs> uh, and started the Cleveland Opera, and mom, event planner, and started the North. Ohio Farmers Market. Yeah. Okay. I see how I kind of I'm kind of getting a a picture of how you ended up where you where you are today. Well, and the other thing that I haven't mentioned is that uh, as you alluded to earlier was uh, a lot of immigrants came to Cleveland. Yep. Uh, in the early 1900s, and a lot of Eastern European. Mm-hmm. So there's a place called the West Side Market, and okay. the West Side Market's downtown. It's just on the West Side, and we would go there with some frequency. My mom would go there every week and get sausages and mm-hmm. pierogies and things mm-hmm. like that. And they were great. So that was that was a staple as well. Yeah. Um, so I shouldn't forget that. Yeah, no. And and so was there wine with these amazing meals that you guys are having at home? Your yeah. Parents have? You know, my dad uh, was um, perhaps cheaper than he was a connoisseur. <laughs> uh, but there was always wine at the dinner table. My mom was less concerned with the cost. So we did have some amazing wines. My dad my dad drank a lot of Monte Antico. No, no, no bash against Monte Antico, no, but man. it's uh, but we drank a lot of it. Um, <laughs> But every once in a while, my mom would come, and uh, they'd go visit New York, and she'd go to, to Sherry Lehman's or something and come home with some fun stuff. And, like, shit. People, have you seen the prices of wines? Like, Petrus was, like, $15 a bottle. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's insane. Oh, yeah. It was insane. It's, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, and that's what the old people say. They're like, I remember right. when. And you're like, oh, shut up. Okay, you know, she <laughs> was $120 a case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, at but one it's point. true. <laughs> it's exactly. It's, these are facts, people. Yeah. Before my dad uh, died, we drank all the really amazing wines from the seventies and eighties uh, that they'd collected, uh, and uh, yeah, I remember. He, so he he uh, gave my mom and dad went to Bordeaux and they bought uh, the first growths, six pack of each for the 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 three kids and the brother 
the, the son-in-law. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I can't remember what they pay. They're like 50 to $70 a bottle or whatever. So I recently, at auction last Monday, bought a bunch of 86s of those wines, and it wasn't they, 50 they, or 60 They were not. No. No. <laughs> they were <laughs> Zero on the strength, man. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what tell, but tell me, this wine, man, what is up? It's so good. Oh, thank you. Um, it's, it's, it's California, but it's, 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 it is old world style. I mean, getting that, and you talk, we'll talk, and like you talk about, like, uh, you said this was a vintage where it was just kind of right. Yeah. You know, I mean, so the whole reason we went out to the, so first of all, I mean, I just to say, I make pay wines. I make West Sonoma coast wines. I'm not trying to make burgundy. So of I, know, I know, you know, a lot yeah. of people say it compliment to me, not that you were, but. Right. Last night I was at an event where people said, oh, you make Burgundian so wines. Burgundian. And I'm like, oh, you know, I make, I make pay wines, but yeah. whatever. I know what you're saying. I appreciate it. Um, but the reason we went out to the coast was so that we didn't have to struggle against the California sun. And when my brother went out there in the mid-'80s and started making wine, and I went out there in the mid-early-'90s and was a retailer eventually, um, California wines were big, fruit-forward wines with a lot of winemaking. And if you looked at the, at the major magazines, they had winemakers on the front of them, the wine magazines. Yeah. And they talked about malolactic fermentation or winemaking and things like that. And that's not what blew our skirt up. We were like, you know, you know especially because I was kind of new to wine. Yeah. So I was like, whoa, I can tell that's Nebbiolo, and I can tell it's on sandy soils because it's lifted and aromatic, and I can tell that that's Nebbiolo grown on clay because it's dense and, like, isn't that cool? Yeah. So I wanted transparency. Got it. To site. So when my when I you know when my head flipped and I said yes I want to do this I said my brother said okay well, um, well you, said, this I, was ninety six right this was ninety five all right so let's back up okay let's back up to because um, we we're, we're gonna get there but I just had to say something so well good. thank you I mean basically I think where you're getting at is it's the acidity and minerality in yep. the wine although it also has texture yeah and that's why we went to the coast. Yep. Because we wanted to make it a traditional Burgundian methodology, so barrel fermented, we do stir the lees, it's all native yeast fermentations, we don't fine, we don't filter, et cetera. That's the, that's the typical Burgundian methodology, a little bit of new oak, about 20%. But historically, when Californians have done that, and they've gotten their fruit from warmer areas, that's that classic California Chardonnay. Well, you, get the, you, you get that tropical, you get the pineapple, you know. Butter and all yeah, that. Yeah, uh, butterscotchy and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so... But you went to college, and you weren't thinking about making wine when you went to college. So where did you go to school? Oh, no. I, mean, I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Okay. And I was thinking about drinking cheap beer and playing rugby and having fun <laughs> and reading literature. I mean, I was a, an English literature major because my homework was literally go, go read a play. Right. And go talk about it tomorrow. I was like, okay, yeah. that sounds great. Yeah. Dartmouth. Dartmouth, you know, <laughs> I used to work – in uh, for nonprofit education, and they're like Dartmouth, Brown, Cornell. They're the forgotten Ivies. Oh man! <laughs> I mean, no, I, I'm saying people. It's don't, true. It's true though. I like it's true. I, I, I don't know what it is. It's like Harvard, Princeton, Yale. That's what most people. When people think Ivy League, they, they that's where they go. But like, like Brown's a great school. Dartmouth's a great school. <laughs> Cornell's, Cornell's a great school. school. <laughs> Wait, I, actually, Auntie, I saw something. Oh. And they were they made fun of Cornell. It was a t- and they were like, like uh, they called it. Oh, Fraser's back. I don't know. Fraser's back on TV. Okay, Fraser's got on Paramount Plus, and and you know in his storyline he went to Harvard. So he's talked to someone, and someone said, 
He's like, oh, well, if I want to do that, I'd go work at a rural community college. And someone said, Cornell. <laughs> they called it a rural community oh, college. Man. Like, dude, oh, that's, man. I was like, that's brutal. <laughs> that is brutal. <laughs> but anyway, um, and so, what, so where else did you apply? Because you said you did say that you wanted to get good A, you wanted to get A's. You you were compelled like that. Your brother actually got higher SATs, but he could care less. Right. So like. Was Dartmouth your number one choice? Where where where, where did you want to go to school? Well, so I uh, I didn't really know. Okay. I mean, I, my brother and sister had gone through the process, so I applied to the schools that they went to. Okay. Uh, my sister went to Williams. My brother went to Bowdoin. Um, you I, guys did the. You guys did the. They did the little Ivies, and you. That's okay. And then uh, I also looked at. I liked Middlebury a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dartmouth was kind of a last minute. Oh hey. Yeah. Because the coach reached out. And I thought I was going to go. Yeah, the football coach. I thought I was going to go to Williams or Middlebury, um, and uh, I was lucky enough to get into all the schools. And I went for a uh, a recruiting trip to Middlebury, and I stayed an extra day because I was having so much fun. <laughs> and my next stop was supposed to be Dartmouth during Winter Carnival, which is their big weekend. And I went there, and the guy who was hosting me wanted to study. By the time I eventually got there, and I was like, oh, "What are you talking about? Saturday night? You're like, let's go out." He's like, no, you can watch TV downstairs. I was like, oh, I don't know about this. So I, I just wandered around and ended up in a fraternity that later I would never have walked into when I was a, a, a student there. Um, but uh, I wasn't so keen on it. It was a last minute when I got back. I was like, I probably should go to Dartmouth. It's got a really nice reputation. And then it turns out I loved it. Yeah. And I have friends as recently as two weeks ago who I, for the past 30 years, Every year we get together, 16 of us Nice. get together and spend three days. And I, mean, I have a lot of friends from that time in my life, which I think says something. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. And so what did you major at? I was English, liter- English. English literature with a kind of a minor right. in religion. Because it was like, go read a play. Yeah. Okay. Um, what, did your, what did your parents think of that? Like, you know. Well, so as I was pulling out to go to college, my dad leaned into one window and said, study hard. And my mom leaned into the other window and said, have a good time. <laughs> so my my rule was, as long as I went to class, as long as I did you know did well, you could have I could have as much fun as I wanted. Um, so, you know, my sister, she as the first child became an economics major because that's what my dad said that's what you should do, mm-hmm. which she later was like you know regretted. Mm-hmm. She said, boy, I should have done something different. Uh, my brother, I think, was Far Eastern history. Um, they were just happy he was studying. Um, and uh, yeah, they were fine with it. I mean, I, w- I, w- I always was good at English. That was mm-hmm. in, in high school. I had a really influential teacher who told me, "Hey, you're not just a jock. You know, you've got a brain." And so I was teaching romantic poetry classes for her, particularly this, the Prelude by Wordsworth and things like that. And so, <clears throat> you know, I, I was probably more of a pseudo intellectual than an intellectual <laughs> at that age. But I had this sense that I was good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's cool. And you mentioned. That um, you lived in New York, so after you graduated, graduated from Dartmouth, did you move down to New York City? I did. So I, uh, you know, like my decision to go to college, this is really well thought through. Um, I was writing my 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 paper, my my senior paper, and in the computer center at Dartmouth, and a buddy came up and said, "What are you doing for corporate recruiting?" And I said, I "What's corporate recruiting?" And he said, "Well, you know, people come and they offer you jobs." I was like, "Oh, okay." Well, he's like, "Yeah, today's the last day." So I, I run to the the college counselor, and uh, I see three names that I recognize because they're banks, Mm -hmm. and I signed up for them, and one of them gave me a job. So uh, I really had not thought it through at all. I'd never taken math, econ, statistics, none of that, Uh, and uh, calculus, none of it. 
So I uh, worked for Chase Manhattan before Chemical, before J.P. Morgan uh, snatched it up. So it was old mother Chase, which wow. was old, old school Chase. Yeah, yeah. And uh, went to the, the analyst training program and immediately knew this was not my, my calling. But, you know, it was a two-year job, so I took the two-year job, saved a little bit of money. Uh, funny enough, my nieces both just went through that program at J.P. Morgan, the exact same program and uh, two years ago. But, uh, yeah, I'd saved a little bit of money and said, okay, uh, my brother and I were sitting around, my brother-in-law and I were sitting around on a vacation and talking about Buddhism. And he was like, you should, you should just go travel. And so there was an Asia Society on Park. I don't know if they're still there, but um, there's this guy, Bob Thurman, who's a Buddhist, who, uh, Buddhist monk, first American Buddhist monk, who was supposed to lead a tour around Kailash in Tibet. And so I signed up for that. Turned out it didn't happen. That's another story. But that got me out. That, that I, you know, left Chase and gave up my apartment, and uh, I lived in the, in the East Village. You going to say, where'd you live? I mean, because- Well, I started out in Greenwich Village, right off Washington Square Park my first year, and then the East Village the next year and a half. And I, I, I loved New York. I mean, it was vibrant. It was the early 90s. I was into the kind of conscious rap, Digwell Planets, Groove Collective, stuff oh, yeah. like that. <gasps> giant Steps, man. That's I was right, all giant, giant Steps, steps baby. Totally, I was there. <laughs> We were probably in the same room. I bet. I used to go to all that shit. Yeah. You know? Oh, my God. My buddy Barry Cole was the DJ for them. Uh-huh. And he was, you know, so, like, you know, I'd Groove get Groove theory. Yep. I'd get my, take off my suit, go wandering out, get home around four in the morning, <laughs> get home, go to work the next day. It was fantastic. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think everybody should live in New York for a few years. It, yep. You know, um, it's great. So, you end up exiting. Um, you were supposed to go on that trip. It didn't happen. Where did you, where did you where was your first travel to? Well, so that trip, I, I bought my tickets and everything, and and Buddha Bob tells me about a week before it's time to go. He said, "Oh, uh, they've canceled the trip," and I was like, "Nobody told me that, you know." Uh, and it came up because I said, "Where's my reading list?" Because uh, it's supposed to be kind of a serious thing. You've right. got those guys who's going to lead you around and give you lectures all yeah. the time. So I've got this ticket. So I stopped uh, for about a, a month in Hawaii, where my buddies uh, who'd gone ROTC were stationed. Okay, my two best friends growing up, and. Uh, <clears throat> recalibrated and from there I went to uh, first to Malaysia then Singapore then uh, uh, a couple di- different islands in Indonesia to Irian Jaya which was amazing I got lost in the bush there got abandoned actually in the bush there which was just a life-changing experience and then uh, Sulawesi and then I spent a lot of time in India and Delhi and then northern India and Ladakh which is the Tibetan Buddhist part of, of India and then Nepal for about three four months Lots of hiking and uh, eventually ran out of money. And so where do you go when you run out of money? And you're a backpacker, Berkeley. (laughs) So (laughs) I went to Berkeley. (laughs) And I studied economic development policy because as I was sitting around talking to some people traveling, as you do, uh, a lot of what I was talking about was, you know, how do these various different cultures maintain their cultural identity and the valuable things of these as they're being integrated into a world economy or just world uh, awareness, and uh, I'd had a, some really kind of significant experiences that made me realize the damage, mm-hmm. or you know, that that those interactions can have, uh, where you know, uh, it, it's it's not quite the coke bottle out of the car, but it's it's not or out of the plane, but it's uh, it's 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 important. And uh, what I learned when I went to Berkeley, they, uh, not surprisingly, mostly studied Marxist theory towards development, which was implemented in the 70s in Africa, which was not successful, not successfully implemented. Um, 
And so it was just a lot of Marxist theory, and I was like, wow, I just don't want to be an academic. <laughs> um, that's so wild. Berkeley, so you, did you come home first and apply, or did you, what, were you applying on the road? Like, you know, what Yeah, was so, I mean, the deal was mom said, look, I'll fly you home. Okay. So I'd run out of money, but I probably could have stayed for another month. Okay. And she said, nah, you got to come home for Christmas. Right. I'll fly you home. Yeah. And so I came home for Christmas, at which time now she's got me back. She's like, okay, what's next? And yeah. I was like, yeah. Berkeley. Yeah, so, she, 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 you, you fell for her extradition trap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I didn't think things that through that well. I mean, right. you know, in hindsight, everything makes sense. Yeah. No, but this was uh, – so the timing was right, so yeah. I could show up for the winter semester. And okay. so I did. And you – you uh, just could enroll in these classes. You, I was not taking them initially for credit. Okay. Um, but I could sit in yep. and see what it's all about because I didn't know anything about uh, economic development policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so as I was doing that, realizing that I didn't want to be an academic, I uh, was reading, you know, What Color Is Your Parachute, all those types yeah. of books. Yeah, 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 And uh, <laughs> <coughs> I uh, said, well, I love cooking. I love food. I'll be a chef. Okay. You know, knowing nothing about what that means. So I started hanging out at a – at a restaurant, and the owner one night after a shift uh, was chatting with me, and she's like, why do you want to be a chef? And I'm like, oh, I just, I love going to them. So farmer's markets in Berkeley are a thing. And I, I like, lived in Emeryville for a minute. Okay. So, yeah, the farm market up there, that area, are sick. And I was, I was like a vegan then, so I used to go to uh, Cafe Gratitude all the time. Yeah, Cafe Gratitude. That, that's got an interesting little story to it. I don't know if you followed that up. but uh, No, no. Yeah, oh, no. That, bad news. Yeah, how do, I mean, I knew... I mean, they came out of Est, the Est movement. Right. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Um, well, there was some abuse going on. There was like a lot of sexism. There was some sexual abuse things. Because I saw that the original one is closed. Yeah. Yes, because I, I was talking to somebody who was going there, and they have one in L.A. that's open, but the one in Berkeley is closed. Yeah, was, unfair yeah. labor practices. It was, a, it was a big deal. and it, I, I used to go there all the time, too. What was their names? I forget their names. I even have the, I have the board game, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you got that board game somewhere. All right, you were you. They, they had you in their clutches. I did, I did some landmark stuff, but not S. I did, I did some land, but you know. So, but uh, yes. Um, and you know, I was dating a woman who was. Oh, now so, it comes out. So right. you know, yeah. you know, that's that great scene in Pulp Fiction. He's like, my girlfriend's a vegetarian, so that basically makes me a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that's that was that period of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, and then also, so um, Chez Panisse. Yeah, yeah. Steven Singer was on the podcast a couple a long. Well, well, everything seems so long ago, but when so yeah, so that you were in that scene, you were in that restaurant. Very much scene. so. And in fact, uh, I know Alice. I'm doing a fundraiser on <coughs> Sunday with Alice for Cory Booker. Nice. Uh, and she's a great. I mean, she's obviously hugely important. Yes. Uh, to to cuisine all over the United States, but really kind of coming out of Northern California yep. and defining what that means and having a French kind of influence mm-hmm. but at the same time really embracing local, mm-hmm. organic, uh, somewhat unadorned food. Mm-hmm. And uh, that has become the standard. That's where you start now. Yep. Uh, yeah. And uh, very much influences my cooking. Um, and that was what was kind of turning me on okay. when I was there. I was like, wow, you know, these, this peach is Phenomenal, right? You know, and so like uh, I go walk around the market. I'm like, look at these beautiful vegetables, and that's what I liked about cooking. And then cooking all day and smelling it in the kitchen and all that stuff. And the, yeah, so this woman said, um, "That is not what a professional chef is like." <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and uh, do you want to get married? And I said, "Yeah, I want to get married." She's like, "Well, you'll probably get divorced." 
she, I think she'd had this experience. Yeah. And then she said, well, do you want children? I said, yeah. She goes, they'll hate you. I was like, all right. You're really, really popping the bubble here. Yep. <laughs> my, my parachute just deflated. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And so then my brother was in the other ear. And he was like, check out wine. You like food? You like aroma? Uh, you, you like, you know, the, the really cool thing about, it's true with food as well, but I'm just going to focus on wine. What's really cool about wine, it makes it not just a beverage, is that, yeah, you smell it. Um, and that smells attack, it, 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 that stores in your brain, and your brain uh, also has all these memories that are not just smells, but also sights and sounds and places you've been, and all that gets attached together so that when you drink something, uh, you're having a multi-sense experience, mm -hmm. multi-places maybe, and mm -hmm. an emotional experience. And so that's what caught me as I was, Nick was talking to me and saying, hey, check out wine, and I started drinking a lot more wine with him and we were brewing beer because it was the early 90s and I would cook and we'd stay up all night brewing So beer. he's he's out in California. He's out in California. He's down in Santa Cruz at this time making wine. Okay, so, so he, he was, okay. So right out of college, he'd gone to college with Hugh Davies whose family started Schramsberg. <laughs> yep. And Hugh was a year ahead of him at college, same college, and they were buddies and they were sitting around drinking Schramsberg and my brother was like, what, your parents make wine? I mean, we're from Cleveland. People are like dentists right. or whatever. Like, they, you don't, that doesn't happen. We don't know people who make wine. So when he graduated, he was trying to avoid my parents who were like, law school, Nick, don't you want to be a lawyer? And he said, no, <laughs> he I'm going to go work at Harvest. Avoid my parents. <laughs> and so he went to California, which is about as far as way as you can get from uh, my folks. Um, not that he didn't love them. Um, but uh, yeah, and so he went and started working Harvest and things out there. And that's when he said, yes, I want to do this. And okay. so then he went to UC Davis, got his master's in enology, and then he was down in Santa Cruz making wine when I showed up. And so Where he, was he working in Santa Cruz? It's a place named Stores. It's okay. a, uh, they buy fruit from the Santa Cruz Mountains mostly, I mm -hmm. think, exclusively. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then uh, he'd come up to Berkeley where I was just living in a little in-law apartment, and we'd cook and drink and talk about wine. And that's where I started <coughs> noticing Chardonnay's different where you grow it, every vintage. And so then he said, go work a harvest. So I went and worked a harvest at Cane up on Spring Mountain, mm -hmm. and I really love Cane wines. And I really love Chris Howell, uh, who's the, the winemaker and general manager there. And he's a brilliant, influential guy. Like, he's one of the deepest thinkers I know. And he's given me a, a couple different ideas over the years that have very much shaped the way I think about and talk about wine. But, um, yeah, so I said I love the physical aspect of Harvest. Harvest is like beating a game. It's all happening. Nobody's sleeping. Everybody's on coffee. Everything's, you know, moving and shaking, and that's great. Yeah. And so when that was done, Nick said uh, – <coughs> Why don't you go work retail, see what it's like to actually buy and sell wine? I was like, okay. So I went to San Francisco and uh, became a wine buyer. And I was a wine buyer at a shop that focused on Australian wine. And so this is like Grateful Palate time, right? It was exactly Grateful Palate time. And he, this guy not only bought all the Grateful Palate wines, he was also DI and some himself. Um, and so all the reps who would only bring them Australian wines. So then when the, this green guy comes along and they're like, yeah, you have a couple thousand dollars to buy wines. They're like, hey, green guy, check this out. This is Chablis or this is Riesling. And so they saw a target and mm -hmm. it was great. I got <laughs> to drink hundreds of wine a week. I started figuring out why, you know, what, how the Nahe is different from, you know, in other parts of Germany, et cetera. And that's when I, my, my head kind of popped and I said, I will never get bored of this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, also that sensory experience that I was having, I was having all the time, and I was in three wine tasting groups a week, and one of them was kind of serious with Larry Stone and that group at Rubicon. All these people said mm. to be MSs, and then some was just friends, and would end up, you know, drinking all the wine at the end of the night. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, it was really, really, really exciting. But that's when I was like, okay, yes, I want to do this. Which my brother probably knew all along. He was like, you're the finance guy. Come on, look at this. You know, I, I need you. <laughs> and so uh, he was pushing me in that direction a little bit. And, uh, and he said, let's do this. And I said, well, that's great, except that I, I like European wines. And I didn't really know why I liked them or why I didn't like California wines other than when I was selling California wine as a retailer. I was like, they're big, they're fruity, they're oaky. They're just not, they just don't move me. Um, you know, like most people, I started on Zinn because that's what I could afford. Uh, but then I got tired of it pretty quickly. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's you know, Nick said, look, we don't, you know, mom and dad didn't leave us a chateau or, you know, domain mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we, we're going to do it here. Uh, at least the U.S., and it was where, and Nick said, look, uh, we can do it here. You just have to not fight the California sun. Uh, get up, you know, on the coast uh, where uh, you can have, a, you know, sugars don't raise so quickly, acids don't drop so quickly, you don't get as much fruit impact, and uh, you can hopefully make wines with more complexity. So Nick, um, he's he worked at this place down in Santa Cruz, and – did he work anywhere else? Did he start working? And once you got out, when you know you were up in Berkeley, did he start working his way up further north, or was he still just doing his thing down? Yeah. So w- when he first came out, <coughs> he was in Napa. Okay. And so he worked for Newton. Yep. Uh, for John Conkscard. Uh, oh, was bit. like, come on, see, see, you. This is, I, I have to probe, right? So yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. That's why, that's why we're here. Totally. I'm just joking. And uh, and then he uh, for for the people who don't know, Newton Unfiltered Chardonnay was a thing. It was it was it kind of changed Chardonnay in California for a minute there. It did. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was a thing, such a thing that he put unfiltered on yep. the label, yep. which now is kind of de rigueur. You're like, of course you don't yeah, filter yeah. your Chardonnay. Why would you do that? Right, right. Why would you strip flavor? Right. Um, but he was trying to say something, which is like, you know, I'm not stripping flavor. This is, you know, this is the, the full expression. Yeah. And it was the typical California style. Yep, it's big. But it was, you know, he also knew what he was doing. He's a very smart guy. Uh, and so he he had his ideas for what he was doing, and he passed those. You know, Nick got okay, to so Nick, okay, watch Nick, it. Okay. And then Nick went and worked for uh, La Jota. Yeah. Back when Bill Smith ran La Jota, and Bill Smith was this you know guy out of Texas, oil guy who was just you know could give a heck. He was great. Yeah. And Bill had his own vineyard, but he also bought fruit. And I would say the takeaway from his time with La Jota, where he spent the most time, was own your own fruit. Uh, when you own your own fruit, all the incentives are lined towards great wine. When you got to buy fruit, someone's got to make a profit. They might have different objectives than you, and then you know this way, just get rid of it. So yeah, and then there's also because, and then it's like, you know, um, who gets what block of fruit, um, like previous existing relationships, blah blah blah. Fruit might disappear. Yep. They might sell the vineyard to somebody else. Yep. That's just happening right now to some fruit that we buy like yeah it's it's you know it, it, which is it is the wine it's business. the business you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but but no it's so 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 that's great so he's your brother's learned these lessons um yeah that's amazing he worked at Lahota. wow these are these are there obviously there's the people who know know those who don't know just google Lahota. these are some this is some serious shit back in the day man yeah and so you know but the the interesting thing was he was basically making cabernet yep and chardonnay right. And then uh, after Davis, he went to make mostly Chardonnay at stores. That's mostly what they made. They made very little uh, Pinot Noir. And uh, but Nick is supremely self-confident, and uh, he's really smart. And so, uh, you, you know, people ask me all the time, "Why would two guys in their mid twenties think they can pull this off?" And 
you know, my kind of funny answer is we're young and naive. That's what you need if you're an entrepreneur. But that's a bunch of you guys. There was there was a, a Brewer Clifton. There was a bunch of guys in your twenties around that time who were doing doing exactly what you and your brother did. Like, you got to do it when you're young, dumb, and full of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you have nothing kind yeah. of to lose. Right. Right. Because yeah, that's like now okay, your you father's ask me a traitor. Now to start your father's it? a traitor. Exactly. Right. You 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 take the risk when you're young. Like you, now when when you're like behind the eight ball. Like me at my age, like I'm not doing any risky shit. Well, this no. is kind of risky, but yeah, exactly. Like you, you're not, you're not like okay. My kids in college, you know, now's a great time to go start making my own wine. We're gonna go buy wine, and you're gonna be on your own next year, kid. Like right, you know, like no, you got a lot of obligations. Yeah, yeah, you're you're in it. Yeah, you made a lot of decisions. You can't go back on that decision tree. Yeah, I can't get up to get a basketball practice. I got like like you like the 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 die was cast, and so that's I think that's awesome. You know, it's actually probably actually a good time to take a quick break. So we'll take a quick break. And we'll be right back with more Andy Pay. My love for Grenache is unabashed. I have no shame in my game when it comes to the world's greatest grape. Uh, if you want to take a deeper dive into uh, this incredible varietal, uh, you should go over to GrenacheStudy.com and get on the uh, email list. That way, uh, you can find out about events that will be happening around the country and very soon around the world. Just go to GrenacheStudy.com, enter your best email address, and I look forward to drinking some Grenache with you in 2024 and beyond. Okay, we are back. And, God, i got to tell you, like I've I've had your wines like at a big skernic tasting. The problem when you go to these these grand tasting great, you get to taste a lot of wines, right? But like you know, it's speed. It's like speed tasting. Yeah, you know? just getting to enjoy a bottle glass over time just really is it's a different experience. It is. I never understand why people try to write extensive notes at these large tastings. For me, it's thumb up, thumb down. Yep. And then there's going to be a next time when I'm going to start. Then I'll dive into it it's just like do i like this do i not you know right that's that's me too like and that's what i kind of when i started just messing around with the black wine guy with the instagram um then i would write my notes over like the course of like hours right or even if i didn't fish bomb the next day like and and in the middle of like shit i'm 90 minutes in and it just took this incredible turn like look that'd be my my notes would literally be what's going on versus like you know you see those like i said taste all the wines taste 500 wines in a day and you rate them and thank god for the people who do that because they're kind of like guideposts but you really for me it's it's just like i'm, I, I'm every time i'm like shit i'm like i got another podcast to do every day. i'm like i'm gonna be tore up <laughs> by the end of the day four hours of it's not even the talk it's the four hours of just drinking delicious wines well and i i don't i don't know how you touched on on critics i don't know how they do it um, and I'm, and you know, they are really important in order to direct people because this is something you really can't understand unless yep. you put it in your mouth. So yep. you need someone who has to kind of, that you trust yep. and kind of be able to communicate what to expect. Um, but wine changes so much and that's, yeah. what's so cool. If you're making great wines, yeah. it should change over the course of the hour, an hour and a half. You're drinking the bottle with a dish. Yep. It should change over the 20 years it's aging. Yep. Uh, and uh, I mean, that is, that's the really joyful part of wine. People ask me when to drink your wine, when to drink my wine, pay wine. And I say, you know, it really depends on who you are. Do you like power and impact or do you like what happens with age, blah, blah, blah. But um, 
really, uh, it's, it's, it's not a wine. It's many wines. It's when you drink it, what you're drinking it with, uh, you know. Who you're drinking Who you're with. drinking it with, what you're eating, yep. all those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So <clears throat> you guys are feeling, you're feeling, you're feeling a little, you're feeling kind of, um, feeling kind of frisky. You're like, yo, we, I think we can do this. And you said your brother is supremely confident. And he's got this theory. His theory is, and, 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 and we came to this theory, but you know, he really was driving the ship because he's the guy who's got the viticulture and enology mm-hmm. degree from Davis. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> you know, I'm just big and dumb. And so he's, I'm his Okay, I, th- I thought we, I thought your influential teacher said you're not just a jock. All right, sorry, all right. All right. You're not just a jock, Andy. Well, so when it comes to, <laughs> well, it, it comes, it comes more so when we started farming. <clears throat> he was the guy who was making the decisions. I was the guy who was yep. uh, shoveling rock. Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody's, someone's got to do it. <laughs> My mom told me I'd be, a bit, you know, everybody, the world needs ditch diggers too, Andy. You know, if you don't want to study, that's fine. But uh, anyway, so the theory was the Pacific Ocean is cold year round. It is. It's not. I grew up two blocks from Atlantic Ocean. I remember going out to California. I'm like, shit, this water is cold. Like, maybe if it's 100 degrees on the beach in Santa Monica, you'll go in because it's just so freaking hot. But other than that, you need a wetsuit. Well, you're not alone. I mean, you know, there are people who do very good trade in San Francisco sweatshirts because everybody comes out. They're like, I'm in California. I'm going to walk over the Golden Gate Bridge. And they freeze their ass off. Um but that's because the Pacific Ocean up north, the North Arctic currents come down the coast and up wells the coast. It's 52 degrees year-round. doesn't warm up. But it stays 52 degrees in the summer, and that's what makes it such an interesting place. So mm. I don't want to launch into the whole why the West Soma Coast is so cool and interesting and unique. But the idea was, until you're ready for that, yeah. but the idea was get up against the coast so you can moderate the California, beautiful California sun. Right. So let's talk about... <clears throat> Sonoma and the coast because I don't know where I read it, but um, the Sonoma coast as an AVA is, is has been a pretty fluid thing up until now. Well, the Sonoma coast as an AVA um, is – who's going to listen to this? i got to be careful what I say. I, I, I know. Exactly. Right, so, Especially yeah. I'll edit a whole lot. So, <laughs> it it – it puts to the test what an AVA is. Yeah, that's yeah. So an AVA, uh, American Viticultural Area, is saying, look, if you're within this area, there are enough things in common, physically uh, or otherwise, that the wine should have some things in common, and that should help the consumer uh, be able to understand what they're going to get. The AVA of Sonoma Coast covers half the county of Sonoma, right? That's including right. the Russian River, Sonoma Mountain, half of Carneros, Petaluma Gap, and oh yeah, the coast. <laughs> And they're, uh, you know, 30 miles wide, 30-degree temperature differences, different soil types. There are more soils in Sonoma County than all of France. Mm. And so, you know, it's like calling it the France AVA. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so it was done uh, in order to uh, give someone the ability to state bottle their Chardonnay back uh, in the 70s or 80s whenever it was created. And, you know, whomever was in charge just, Stamped that, and so that ridiculous. Just like AV. when that other chateau got in, became a first growth in the seventies. Like you could pull some things off. Things happen. You know, some people you could pull some things off. <laughs> I'm not going to cast aspersions. I'll let no, you we're know. not. We're just talking history, you know. <laughs> and the people know, like, yeah, I forgot. You know, people were like, yeah, that's right. You know, so it's all good. But I mean, it's, I I think these are like I said. If it the the reason for it is to 
inform the consumer to give them some type of ballpark. Like it's it, this is important to know because like I I mean, Russian River Chardonnay is way different from like what I'm drinking now or like we'll see tomorrow like Occidental and things like from Wayfair. Um, yeah, I mean so so. Uh, I would go out and sell wine in the two, 2000s. Okay. And I'd come to New York and I'd say, hey, here's my Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir Chardonnay. And they'd go, oh, I already have that on my list. I'm cool. And I'm like, well, what do you have? And then they'd say it. And I'm like, mm, that's actually in Carneros. That is in the eastern part of Russian River. Like, those are entirely different wines. Right. But they've checked the box. They're like, right. I got well, a Sonoma well, Coast. Well, exactly. Because, you know, there's also that thing people are like, you know, to get that that award from that magazine you have to have you yeah have to, you have to have a wine from every region in the world and so they said the box is checked i don't need your wine bro yeah i'm, I'm gonna get my award <laughs> or i've already got to buy the glass from yeah. that region i don't need another buy the glass yeah. from that region i'm like you don't have a buy the glass from my region you yeah. have it from the russian river so let's go back to let's let's kind of dive in so your brother was like and we still going back he's, he's he said we can do it in california you just have to not sun. just California, it was the United States. So yeah. we went up to Oregon. Okay, we, went, we actually went up to Walla Walla at one point. We were like, we're just going to go uh, Syrah in, uh, in Walla Walla, um, which we decided not to, thankfully. But uh, only thankfully because we'd be limited to just Syrah, which I love. But. I don't know, man. I've had, I've, I've had Chardonnay from the Rocks District. Did you was know that right? Yeah, Chardonnay. No, right. it's very, it's a very, it was a very interesting wine. Okay. It was a very interesting wine. Um, but high desert farming. It's a different thing. It is. And so, you know what's so funny you said that? Coming in after you is Christoph Barron of Bionic Oh, Watts. there you go. I better be careful what I say. <laughs> no, say what you want. <laughs> you don't know because Christoph is going to say what he's going to say. <laughs> it is true. Yeah. All I have to say is that's it's not Cote Roti. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I, hey, enough said. Um, I wish I'd brought my Syrah. I, I wish uh, you had. So, well, you'll have it tomorrow. Oh, cool. So, uh, yeah, so we, were, we looked all over Oregon, all over the Willamette. We went down to what's now the Santa Rita Hills. We realized the Santa Rita Hills, really interesting area, but the waters warmed up in the summer, so they didn't moderate as much. Mm. So we ended up, I was actually camped out on a, a black black sand beach on the Lost Coast in Humboldt. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically on the weekends, my brother and I would get in our pickup trucks and go trespassing all over the, 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 the coast, which is mostly owned by timber companies. Yep. And uh, I, uh, I'd been, I was by myself this time, and I was up in Humboldt, and I woke up and... Uh, I, I drove in and I uh, saw grapes like a half mile off the coast in Humboldt, which is, <coughs> you know, way too cold for grapes. Right. So being really smart, I pull up and I get out of my truck and I walk to this trailer and these two guys come out and they're like, "What you want?" Yeah, I was like, "Man, you're up in the Golden Triangle, bro. Shoot, you, right? You're like, it's like you don't be trespassing." <laughs> yeah, so I, I decided to double down on my stupidity and I said, "Well, gee, I see you have grapes. I'm interested in grapes." And you know, like I basically said, "Nice, nice cover right. for your weed." Crop. Right. Right. And uh, they're like, well, we're bottling our Sparky. You want to help? And I was like, sure. So I walk behind this. I'm going to walk behind this uh, this dilapidated uh, shed just waiting to get knocked on the head. And there are a bunch of hippies in their 60s with tied eyes, and they're on this rickety old bottling line. They're bottling their sparkling and passing a big joint around. And I was like, okay. So uh, after that, I was like, all right, perhaps I shouldn't trespass today, which is what I usually do uh, on these old logging roads looking for land, trying to get a good sight line and take yep. shots. And then I would look at U.S. Geological Survey maps and find out who owns it and then try to contact them and find the breaks and the ridges to find out where the cool air penetration is, look for, like, fern and, and, and moss and things that would tell me that there might be some fog or some water in the ground. 
So instead, I just drive down the coast and I stopped in Mendocino, mm-hmm. the town of, and uh, got a real estate listing. And I was like, okay, it's down the coast, about 40 minutes, five minutes, an hour, go down there. And I pulled up in this old sheep ranch in Apple Orchard. And that turned out to be the place. And it was, you know, August 5th or something. And it was about 65 degrees and the wind was blowing and it was two in the afternoon. And I was like, this is kind of perfect. So I took a bunch of Polaroids because that's what you took back then. And I put them in the mail and sent them to my brother in Santa Cruz. And he came up and took a bunch of soil samples. And it just so happened there was an old timer on the property who was fixing the house for the previous owner who had it just as a retirement home. And uh, he took daily temperature and precipitation into a, an, uh, down into a spiral uh, notebook. Wow. Which who knows if it was accurate, but it was at least consistently inaccurate. <coughs> well, exactly. At least it was consistent. Yeah. And so <laughs> it, it showed us that, yeah, all the rain happens pretty much starting in October, but not too much, uh, through May. And that it really never exceeds 70-ish in the summer, at the hottest time of the day, at least when he was reading. And, uh, you know... Dumb. So half half we knew what we were looking for, mm-hmm. and half we got lucky. Yeah. And so we said, let's go for it. And then because it had been a sheep ranch for uh, after it was an apple orchard, um, it was almost all cleared. And so we didn't have to really clear anything. And we just took down a bunch of fences and stuff like that. Kept a lot of the old 160-year-old apple and pear trees, uh, which is really cool because a lot of those are eating and some are for cider and things like that. And they would dry them on site and like, kill them there and then take them out to the coast to the trees that they cut down to – go feed all the gold rush people and the people pouring into San Francisco. And so, yeah, we, uh, we did that, bought that in 96 and then, uh, planted 98. So I, it was so funny. You said you stopped in Mendocino. I was like, how, why didn't you, uh, purchase in Mendocino? Cause Mendocino has turned out to have some pretty decent Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah, for sure. So I like the Anderson Valley. I actually make an Anderson Valley Pinot Noir from Savoy. Okay. Um, different though. Yeah. It's a valley. It's, it's continental influence. Yeah. Where we are as a maritime influence. Okay. But if you go up on the Mendocino Ridges, now you're starting to get some of the, yep. the, the coastal influence. Higher elevation, they can get a little bit warmer during the day because mm-hmm. they're higher, further away from that Pacific Ocean. Um, but really, there was, there was nobody up there at that time. Right. Um, and uh, we, you know, you want to talk about the Golden Triangle. <laughs> And there are people up there, but they weren't growing grapes. Mendo, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, and then I just happened to stumble on this. Okay. Um, so it was it was not even like I'm um, you know wasn't looking in Mendocino. I just I, yeah, I found this. So I I hate to do this, but like but like what when you, so you you guys had to plant the whole vineyard, right? Yeah. All right. So how did you come up with the clonal selection? Well, so my brother had been and I had been traveling around to various wine country and tasting winemakers, tasting with winemakers, different clones out of barrel. And so you get a sense for like, okay, that's the clone, but I don't know. There's also the site there. So who knows the winemaking decisions, but you start to build an idea. And there's also this great book this guy Caldwell has that tells you about all the different clones and quality and rootstock and whatnot. So we because we didn't know what it would be like to grow grapes up there because no one had grown grapes up in the, in the where we are in the northern part of the West Sonoma Coast. <clears throat> we're at 600 feet elevation, a lot lower than the people who did have vineyards out there. They were all at Fort Ross Seaview, which is higher elevation. Yeah. So we were colder because we're deeper into the inversion layer. So we didn't really know. So we ended up planting 15 clones of Pinot. Well, okay, we'll see what does well out here. And it turns out uh, a lot of them do well. And it's been really interesting because it's like having uh, all these different colors on your palette mm-hmm. as a painter. Mm-hmm. You'll have some that'll be top notes, some medium notes, some base notes. 
you know, if you have just black and white, you can do only so much, more of this, less of that. Here you can layer them and you can create other things. And because of that, we're able to make three different estate pinots. Um, and uh, yeah, so, but, so we had to experiment. We have seven different clones of Chardonnay, six of Syrah, couple of Viognier, et cetera. How many, how many acres are planted to the estate? It's now 53 acres, okay. which is pretty much fully planted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you mentioned uh, Fort Ross Seaview. So like, let's talk about Fort Ross Seaview versus Occidental versus where you guys are. Okay. Let's break down kind of yeah. like some so, of the... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to lay out the whole why is the West Sonoma Coast yes, unique go. thing. Yes, go. And, and then I'm going to break it down. Yes. Why is, the, why is the West Extreme Sonoma Coast so unique? Okay. Go. So the Pacific Ocean doesn't heat up. Your weather comes on shore on the West Coast. Uh, so it is coming, bit, and that's because the interior valley is so warm, mm-hmm. hot air rises, creates mm-hmm. a vacuum, pulls in the marine layer. Mm-hmm. So that marine layer comes, and if you're within about five or six miles with some kind of avenue to the ocean, that's where your, your fog and your wind is going to come. And if you're below 1,000 feet, you're close enough to that huge body of water that your temperatures are moderated by that huge body of water. It's an inversion layer because the lower you are, the closer you are to that colder body of the water, the colder you are. Inverted because here in New York, you go climbing a mountain, the higher you go, the colder you are. So that's inverted. Wow. So Fort Ross Seaview, by definition, is an AVA. It's 970 feet and above. But that's because the, the inversion layer stops around 970 feet. So they're kind of above that fog. They do get some coastal influence, but it's significantly warmer than where we are. Okay. Occidental has more in common with us because they're, for the most part, in lower elevations. Mm-hmm. Not all of them. There's some higher ones up on the ridges there. Um, but it's cool, uh, like for the same reasons as we are. Um, soils are somewhat similar, different series of soils, but similar composition and things. A little bit further inland, depending on the vineyard. They're a little bit closer to the Petaluma Gap, so it gets a little bit thicker, the mm-hmm. marine layer in there. But being a little bit further inland might get a little warmer in the day. But we kind of have more in common with the Occidental region than we do the Fort Ross Sea. But all of us, what is distinctive <coughs> is from a temperature is the Pacific Ocean and the influence of fog and wind. Wind comes in at noon every day, set your watch by it. It's like turning on the fan in the refrigerator. The hottest time of your day is right before the wind comes, like late morning. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the the climate thing. The soil uh, as well. I mean, we're right on the San Andreas Fault. So the San Andreas Fault runs right along the, just on inland where we are, and Mm -hmm. then it dips into the ocean uh, around Jenner, Great Bodega Bay, and Tamales Bay. Mm -hmm. So uh, that San Andreas Fault, that was 30 million years ago, subducting, scraping up these marine soils as it pushed the, the Pacific Plate, pushed the Farallon Plate underneath the North American Plate. So we're farming on these old marine soils. Uh, there are all different types of soil uh, there as well. There's kind of base rock and, and some other uh, soils. that You've had Jasmine on here before. Yep. I'm sure she talks soil with you. Um, that's part of the Hearst story. Yeah. Um, but uh, where we are, it's fairly uniform. We're an inland sea that what during that period was uplifted and then drained, and it created the river that goes out to the ocean. That's why we have a break in the coastal ridge. That's our little avenue. Um, so uh, those factors are why <coughs> you can have, you know, we don't get the heat in the summer. Yep. So if you're in other cold climate regions, let's say growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, let's say Burgundy, uh, you ever been to Bone in July? It can be pretty warm. Yeah. Uh, so you ever been to the Cote Roti in July? It can be pretty warm. Same with Oregon. I don't know why they have IPNC the last weekend of July. It's like the warmest weekend. <laughs> it's hard to talk about cold climate Pinot Noir when you're like, it's 100 degrees out. <laughs> but anyway, those things are continent. Those regions are continental. Yeah. They're also going to have rain and other things that we don't have. We, we, we don't get rain in the summer. But 
um, we just don't get the heat. So like if you drink my Syrah, you don't get, for the most part, you usually don't get black olive or black flavors like you would in Cornas or mm -hmm. sometimes in Amritage and Cote Roti. Mm -hmm. We just don't get the heat. Mm -hmm. um, but the most important thing that we're looking for is cool weather between Verasion and Pick. Verasion's when you start accumulating color mm -hmm. and flavors and other phenolics in the skins, as well as sugar, not in the skins, but in the pulp. And uh, if you have a really cool interval there, uh, not only will it be longer, so you have more hang time, so you have more phenolic development in your skins, but that allows these other flavors that we like. The earthy flavors, the tea, the floral, the, the for Syrah would be like the rotundan white pepper and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. um, that we like to offset that California fruit. Because, you know, California, you know, it's kind of known for fruit, but if I think about the wines that I love, I'm looking for fruit, floral, and earth components. Okay. Let's just say for Pinot Noir, like yep. a triangle, one mm -hmm. on each little mm -hmm. axis, um, each little corner. I want to be living in the middle. I want to have a little bit of, of all of that. Certain vintages, I might be more into the warm, in a warmer vintage. I might be more into fruit, mm -hmm. but I want to live in the middle. If it gets outside the triangle, then it's not going to be a pay wine. Um, and your brother, um, is he still the winemaker? No, 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 no. So, you know, one of the very fortunate things that happened was that my brother and I out there, so first of all, this is like an hour to the nearest grocery store. It's the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and it's really beautiful. So we got very lucky. We were not looking for a beautiful site. We almost uh, bought a piece of land down in Southern California. We would have been living in a trailer. No, it's fine. My brother was like, look, it doesn't matter. Lifestyle doesn't matter. We're both single. It doesn't matter. Right. We'll find girlfriends someday. It's all, about, <laughs> it's all about the site and the quality. And I was like, okay. Um, just turns out that we chose a really beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and uh, uh, so my brother uh, would work harvest in the fall after we planted. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was, I think, working at Flowers that year down in Port Ross, Seaview. And uh, I was, you know, riding the tractor, putting out seed, putting out straw, getting ready for the rains, erosion mitigation, stuff like that. And I felt like a character, I was dri driving up and down the rows, and I was like, hmm, I feel like a character in a Steinbeck novel, you know? <laughs> and I was like, hmm, I did another row, and I was like, yeah, those guys are always just like bitter, terse, taciturn men who just get wed to some rock, you know? <laughs> and like, so I was like, that's just not me. I mean, I'm, I'm extroverted, you know, that's just, I, I don't know if I can do this, yeah. you know? I mean, my brother and I basically were working seven days a week, uh, my big event was to go into Healdsburg an hour and a half away and uh, buy groceries and go to the pub and drink a beer and come back. Ugh. Well, that's, that I mean, Healdsburg is a cool town, but damn, that's a rough existence. Well, man. yeah, especially when you're single. I was like, yeah, and, and you're like, you're 20s and you're single. <laughs> and they didn't have FarmersOnly.com. Oh, they might, the FarmersOnly.com wasn't even out then. So. I don't even know what that is. How do you know what that is? Oh, because I see the commercials, man. It's so uh, funny. Okay. Um, well, so then, uh, yeah, wow. so I'm on to the Pinot. So the important uh, part is uh, I basically said I cannot stay out here. Okay. So I'm going to go down to San Francisco. I'm going to get a job, make some money. We need money anyway because okay. there's nothing coming in here. We're just waiting for the vines yep. or farming the vines. Yep. And that left my brother by himself out in the middle of nowhere. And my brother got a little weird, der, and, uh, you know, as one would. Um, and it made him, it compelled him to have to drive two and a half hours to Napa to go see some of his friends from Davis. And when there, he ran across an old classmate, uh, Vanessa Wong. And Vanessa, at the time, was the winemaker at Peter Michael Ooh. in Knights Valley. 
and she was putting in a vineyard wow. for them out on the coast in Fort Ross Seaview. Okay. And she, Nick, she were chatting, and he's like, yeah, I've got 15 different clubs of Pinot. She's like, really? Okay, I'm very interested to go see what that's all about. So she went out there in September of 2000. So there was third leaf. We had left a little bit of Chardonnay on the vine just to check it out. We weren't going to – we didn't make it and sell it. And she was eating that fruit, and she was like, oh, my gosh, this Chardonnay tastes really different than anything I get from Peter Michael. It's mm -hmm. just got this, like, racy, nervy, green-fruited pear thing going on. Uh, I want to do this. And so she left Peter Michael in spring of 2001 and became our winemaker. Pause. First of all, nervy is a good way because when I finished that shirt, I was like, tension would be the uh, other way of saying it, but it is very nervy. So <laughs> for you guys, again, I don't have time to go on this, but just if you don't know who Peter Michael, Google Peter Michael Wines, Insane Wines, uh, always highly rated. And she leaves Peter Michael to come. You guys work at your like fledgling operation. I did say that my brother can be convincing. Yes, you managed to talk me yeah. into. <laughs> well, so I uh, so she'd started out after Davis. She went to Lafitte Rothschild. And she was at Domaine Jean Gros, and then she came back and she was the assistant, and then she was the head winemaker at Peter Michael. Wow. So she hasn't messed around. No, geez, she grew so. up in uh, the inner Richmond of. Uh, San Francisco, mm -hmm. and like she's always, you know, she's a very focused person. Mm -hmm. So she did not make this decision whimsically, but I think she said, Look, I want to be able to make the style of the wines that I like, and this is more of the style that I like. Because you had to make the Peter Michael style at Peter Michael. Yeah. Um, which is great wines and had been set by Helen Turley a long time yep. ago. That's the style. Yep. So in this case, She's like, yeah, I want to be the winemaker, which kicked my brother out. I'm like, come on, Nick. I mean, you know, she's a celebrity. <laughs> yeah. To his credit, he was like, no problem. I'll be the grower. Yeah. And so, and that's what Nick does. Nick is the grower. And okay. he's very much, I mean, he's fixing all the tractors himself. He, he's the guy who's driving the tractor. He wears the blue zip up. <laughs> like, he's, he's fully embraced being a farmer. He's not a gentleman farmer. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, they started dating and got married. And mm -hmm. which was great because Peter Michael pays a lot better than I do. Yeah, I'm just like yeah. some saying like, <laughs> like that's a that's like that's a paying gig. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, um, but it was old school. It we, is. It we, is. We, we got the winemaker. She got the vineyard. It's just how you do it. I, I get it. I get it. I love these stories. That's so wild. Yeah, people, I think, don't even understand sometimes what it takes to start something from the ground up and it is it's like we buy a land and we're gonna live in a trailer you know and we're not gonna be able to make a wine for like five years and how do you sustain what so what did you do in san francisco for, for work oh my god so i w first worked for napa valley kitchens okay. which was a uh, guy just passed away unfortunately um uh, michael chiarello he had started consorcio which was oh yeah he's from uh he became famous as a chef, yep. and also, yep. uh, you know, TV chef. Yep, TV chef. Yep. But uh, some consumer packaged goods. So I, I was, I was, I worked in marketing for that. I, so I had gone and gotten an MBA. Okay. Uh, Where'd you? So so after we planted the vineyard, I'm sorry. After we bought the vineyard in '96, I said, "Look, I need to go get a business plan so okay. I can go get a loan." And uh, so I went to Haas, UC Berkeley. Haas, okay, yep. Got got an MBA there. Wrote my business plan. And use it to get a loan. And uh, so when I got out and I was farming for a couple of years, when I came down, I had an MBA. So I could get a job as a marketer. Yep. And then eventually as a brand strategy consultant, mm -hmm. opened up a West Coast uh, office for an East Coast brand consulting firm. And I was the strategist type, not, not a design guy. Mm -hmm. And um, 
didn't love any of that, but it was paying the bills yep. and uh, keeping me in San Francisco, uh, and I enjoyed that. And then went back full time uh, when we started having wine to sell. And in the meantime, down in San Francisco, that's when I was tasting all the time. And I was tasting in groups, mm-hmm. and I got to really know the sommelier community there. And a lot of those people are my friends, and uh, started learning about what they were interested in. It was really kind of good timing because the sommelier uh, community is pretty strong in San Francisco and was really coming out of that Rubicon uh, experience mm-hmm. with Larry Stone and some other people there. And yep. those people are my first customers. And so, you know, you know, when you sit down and, and some of these heralded uh, sommeliers buy the wine and they call their friends and say, hey, you should go taste Andy Pay's wines, that really helped. And especially because I wasn't giving my wine to the reviewers then because the reviewers back then weren't looking for my that's style of wine. That's not this style of wine. No. They, they wanted big fruit and, and <coughs> impact, and that's and so I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the influencers that I care about, which are the sommeliers, mm-hmm. because they are looking for wines that go well with food, that have complexity and acidity, and they want to sell that on the floor, because a lot of people come to San Francisco and they're like, I wanna drink California wine, stop selling me French wine, which is what the Samja used to wanting to sell at the high-end places. And so now they had something and be like, okay, yeah, check this out, this is cool. And so we were really embraced, and that was very fortunate for us. Um, and that kind of launched us. And you know, and speaking of New York, uh, Skernick Wines, mm-hmm. at the time it was called Michael Skernick Wines, mm-hmm. they, uh, they sell Peter Michael Wines. And so yep. they knew when Vanessa left, and they, Michael sent a letter to Vanessa saying, hey, when you guys have wine, let me know. And to his word, our very first vintage, they brought us in, and we've been working with them for 20 years. And I tell people, you gotta get to know, you want to get to know, um, AVAs or, or, you know, sites, vineyards, and winemakers, right? Because then, then you can follow things around, right? Like that's it's like a, a wine hack for me. I'm like, oh, so-and-so worked there. Now they're, you know what I mean? Or, oh, so-and-so's a consultant on this. Oh. Uh, it's, a, it's a little trick that people don't often think about. But, um, yeah, Michael's a savvy guy, so I could see him like. Well, also an interesting wrinkle on that is that <coughs> um, – People ask me all the time, like, what's a Vanessa Wong wine? And I would say, actually, you can't taste a certain flavor or, or you know, barrel use or picking decision mm-hmm. or anything to say, oh, yeah, that's a Vanessa Wong wine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, very much, I would say, like, her wines have a certain focus, mm-hmm. a certain linearity to mm-hmm. them and, and har- harmony to them. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't want to put herself in front of the wine. Um, so... Uh, what she does have, though, is she's always worked for great estate wineries at all the places she's been. And I think that is what informs her approach to making those style of wines. And so that's why, like you were just talking about, you follow a winemaker. It's yep. like, well, if you drunk, you know, uh, Peter Michael, you wouldn't necessarily think that Vanessa would make these style of wines unless you said, oh, no, wait, but she's always made, made very high quality estate wines. Right. So she respects the fruit and what she's doing. And she delivers that. Right. Um, no, I, that's a good that's a good distinction um, because yes, um, you know, the, the, the winemakers who sell the most wine are making wines that taste pretty much the same every year because it's formulaic and that's what they have to do to keep their job. And listen, it's, it's hard. Wine business is beautiful, but it's hard. It man. Is hard. <laughs> okay. it's not actually a whole lot of jobs, right? So, like, you know, not everybody gets to have an amazing story like like the pay brothers, but like, but you know, you know, kudos to people who do it, you know. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so yeah, it, it is that is a distinct because it's a state, right? So it seems that she is going to um, 
that was a good distinction because when you know winemakers, you know that's a really good winemaker. So what you can get from it is they've they've crafted the best wine from the grapes they've got, and that's and and she kind of according to what I'd heard you say specializes in estate wines. Like this is what the estate gives me, and and how do I craft this into the best possible wine that showcases where these grapes are grown? Right. Yeah. As opposed to Vanessa Wong. Right. 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 Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people say it's a cliche in the wine business to say, oh, the wines are made in the vineyard, blah, blah, blah. And that's what they're trying to get across is like they're trying to transmit the the expression of, of the grapes of the vineyard in the wine. But truly, that is that is how she thinks about it. And, um, you know, you'd be very surprised to come across one of our wines that, ha- you know, as something out of balance or out of whack mm-hmm. uh, because she had an idea. Like, mm-hmm. that's not how she works. She's right. very incremental. Like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always the guy who's like, can we dial back the new oak and maybe a little bit more whole cluster? And she like, she'll like 1% change. Yeah. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. She's not like, okay, let's just do yeah. this. Yeah. Like, no, it's not happening that way. <laughs> yeah, she's, got, she, she's got spreadsheets and things like plastered all over her walls of, of picking dates and flavors. And yeah, everything. and then there's that too. I think I, uh, I know I didn't. A lot of people don't think like, that as much art is in it, there's a science part, and like like a lot of people, um, they're you know I wouldn't say it's data driven, but they care enough so they want to know. They're they're trying to uh, they're taking notes, right? So, yeah, man. I mean, like people who make good wine the first couple of years out of the gates without any kind of knowledge of winemaking or the chemistry of winemaking or any of that got lucky. Exactly, they're lucky. You know. Uh, the reason why Nick and Vanessa, both scientists, you know, they're both food yeah. chemists, uh, they absolutely want to know what's going on. They want to know the health of the yeast. They want to look at it under a microscope, all that kind of stuff. Um, they don't futz with the wines, uh, but they want to know what's going on because if something is going wrong, they want to know about it. They want to be, okay, do we have to change the nutrients in the vineyard so that the fruit comes in differently? Because the whole idea of going to the coast was – to be able to grow fruit that you didn't have to change it when you brought it in. Gotcha. And so, uh, you know, uh, yes, there's an art to it, but I think there's a lot of, of, of knowledge and science that goes into it. And if you don't know what's going on, uh, you're, you're, you're going to have vintages where all of a sudden things don't work out. Right, right. And so talk about, so we have this, we're drinking the uh, 2021 Estate Pinot, West Sonoma Coast, Pomerium. Yeah, so I, I, the 21 Pinot Noirs are just flat-out amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of gave you that quick triangle, the fruit, floral, and earth on the corners thing, and I, I feel like it's right in the middle. So, like, uh, the vines are 23 years old. Uh, Pomerium is a blend of mostly two clones. Uh, I won't bore people on that, but they're kind of base-noted clones, mm-hmm. uh, more muscular. Uh, so we get a little bit of whole cluster to kind of give a little floral lift, but yep. then again, you got to watch how much whole cluster because it might get too astringent and then take it out of balance. So it's only about 10 or 12% whole cluster, but that's just enough to give a little floral lift. Yeah. We would never want you to taste one of or smell one of our wines and say, oh, it's stemming because then we messed up. Mm-hmm. Just like we would never want you to say, oh, it's oaky because that means it's out of whack mm-hmm. or alcoholic or any of that. So um, uh, they're really delicious. The 21s are approachable, but they're also going to age really well. I mean, this wine is showing promise for days. Like, this is going to be a 20-year wine, no problem. Mm -hmm. And most of our wines age very, very well because they have very high acidity, and that's probably the most important thing for keeping wines fresh when they age. Um, I just poured a bunch of 07s at a dinner last Friday, and they were, you know, nobody could believe that they were 15 years old. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so this is Pomerium. We make three different estate Pinots. Mm. Pomerium means apple orchard in Latin. All the Pum. all the different wines kind of hearken to the terroir, to mm. our what makes our place special. The other one, no, another one, Scallop Shelf. We are mm. former Inland Sea. We have scallop fossils in our soils. We were digging, uh, prepping the soils and everything. We found all these fossils. Um, and then we're on a shelf because it drops right off into the river that drained out to the ocean. And then Ama is the third one. Ama means the land and the Kashaya language of the Pomo Native Americans, of the peoples who lived there first. And we're trying to make wines that capture that expression of land. Uh, that's what's unique, not our winemaking. So we make these three estate Pinots. They're kind of built around one or two clones, each of them, that kind of drive the profile. And then mm -hmm. other clones kind of fill it in. So I was talking about before with the top notes, medium notes, base notes, et cetera. And then what doesn't go in there goes to our West Sonoma Coast Pinots, uh, which is all estate as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then just the, the 21s are pretty lights out. Yeah, no, it's, it's um, really stellar. You had said that when you were starting out, you did not initially submit the wines to uh, publications for reviews. When did you kind of um, change your position on that? So uh, there was a guy, Josh Reynolds. Yeah, was, Josh. Love Josh. Yeah, man. Mishy Josh. Wow. Yep, feel the same. Yep. So I like Josh. And Josh was always like, come on, man. He was working for Stephen Tanzer at the time. Yep. And I always liked Stephen Tanzer's palate. He was a critic who had a palate a little bit more in sync with mine. Yep. And Josh started reviewing for him. I was like, come on. And I was like, okay. So then Josh started that one. I'm going to say it was maybe like 09 or something, mm -hmm. 10, something like that. And then they got purchased by Venice. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, and then Josh was no longer covering California, at least where I am in California. Yep. So uh, Antonio was. Mm -hmm. And so Antonio started reviewing them for Venice. And then when there was a little bit of a change of guard at Robert Parker, um, the new uh, critic, she had come from the restaurant. Is that Lisa? Um, Aaron Brooks. Aaron, Aaron, okay. And Aaron had come from Frosca. Yes. Uh, and Frosca is a great restaurant uh, run by Bobby Stuckey, owned by Bobby Stuckey. Bobby. You, you, if you listen to that, go listen to that episode. It's a great episode. I love Bobby. Well, Bobby's fantastic. He's Why fantastic. wouldn't you love yeah. Bobby? He's and that's and you know when you talk about, because you talk about um, like there's certain incubators like like that whole Denver, Aspen, Bre Breckenridge area was like so many crazy people have come out of that area. Like, yeah. It's like a proving ground for so many people. 100%. Yeah. I mean, and, and specifically just Frosca too. Yeah, and I mean, Frosca. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Little Nell, because Bob is Little Nell. So everybody yeah. saw the Little Nell. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, so Frosca is an amazing, yes. Audrey Frick, who is now a critic. Audrey, that's the whole reason I went with Audrey. Uh, I, I, she had been recommended to me by uh, another West Sonoma Coast person who said she came from Frosca. And I yep. think she's a real wine lover. And I said, yep. okay. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So that's why I opened up to Dunnick and I opened up to Parker was mm -hmm. that there were critics now who I think like all styles, but uh, and as their job is, is to say this is of this style, this is high quality. Yeah, yeah. So I have, I do, I agree with you, and I, I try. I want. I don't try. I say this, and I will say it again: that you need to un a couple things. One, it is really nice to have a critic who really likes your style of wine. Like the critic's job is to put aside bias and everything, but we're human, so there, there's right. there's that part. Right. There's just subconscious shit we just can't do however um once you know how your palate aligns with the critic right so like for instance there's people i know if someone gives us some there's some people who might give a wine a 91 and it's a 95 to me because they don't like that particular style of wine mm -hmm. so it becomes calibrating your own sure. palate to the critics I said that again for you guys but yeah so yeah so 
you open it up and like and these are pretty highly rated wines yeah the, well <laughs> you know you mentioned audrey audrey uh actually that's i, I got confused there was the, she was the frasca background so yeah. audrey uh gave the 20 the the 21s really really yeah. high scores and that was fantastic and thank you audrey um uh and I, th- it, it, she comes from a Somalia background. Yeah. She, she's thinking about, uh, and, but having said that, she likes wines from all style. And that really, you know, in it, you were talking about calibrating. It used to be the case that I used to have to calibrate. Yeah, I'd say, oh, if that critic gives it a ninety-nine, I don't want it. Yeah, if they give yeah. it an eighty-nine, probably my style. Mm. Um, where I don't have to do that with the current crop of critics, I have to read their notes to look at the adjectives. If they gave it a you know a ninety eight, they really liked it. So I'm like, okay, of the style, they really think this is the best. Now I got to read what the style is by reading the adjectives. Mm. If it's like big fruit, unctuous, whatever, okay, this is a really w- well made of that style. I don't like that style. Right. So if I go to another one that's ninety eight and it's like, oh, it's nervy, <coughs> blah blah blah. Okay, that's the one I buy. I like that. That's a great point. And I also I think that shift has come. Which, Jeb, you know I love you, but like. He goes, okay. <laughs> he wanted to have a singular voice, but you can't you can't review all the wines, right? Oh no, man. How do you <laughs> right, that's right? So like he was at Parker, he left because but like then it becomes right, like you said, like so um understanding it's like I said, there's more voices now, is is the thing, right? There's more perspectives where it was it was Robert Parker's a wine advocate. It was Stephen Tam's International Wine Report, you know, um the only other one, you know Lobby Spectator. Yeah. Um you know, and there's still some small Berghound, you got Sean Sullivan up in you know, Northwest, yeah. but like the challenge becomes with the more commercial magazines is a lot of times they're just hiring writers. It's not even people who necessarily mm. super, super love wine. You know, mm. like I know stories of people who showed up for tastings and, and like didn't even understand the AVA they were in and they're, they were going to be critiquing wines, you know, and like you said, it's it's. I love that. Like, if they got, I got a ninety-nine. I'm nice, but they got an eighty-nine. I'm I'm gonna take a look at that one. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. versus, yeah. So it it, it is. Um, it's good, and I think it's a changing of the guard, right? But I'll be honest with you. I don't know how much scores affect my wine sales. Oh I, well, I don't think with 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 particularly how you and that's you never want that to be. Right, but and, it's, and it's both edges of the sword. And that was the other thing I used to say was. I don't want to hand over my relationship to my customers because really at this point I'm talking about my direct-to-consumer customers. Well, I was going to say. I don't want to hand that over to a critic. I want them to trust me. If I write the notes and I say this and that, like I'm going to tell the truth as I see it, and I want them to rely on me. If they're relying on a critic and a critic doesn't like the next vintage, they go somewhere well, else. Well, you, you don't – well, that's – and that's – how am I going to say this? And that's the – for me – the beauty of DTC and making small amounts of wine, people are buying the wines because they know, like, and trust your palate, right. not the critics. Right. Right? And also what you did, when you start out, when you start out restaurant only and, and knowing who the Psalms are and, you know, food with wine, because a lot of those wines that came out in the 90s, I loved them, but you don't, they don't really go anything except a big greasy cheeseburger and fries because they're just so big and sappy. Whereas, you know, kind of return to wine like how does this pair with what we're gonna have what, what am i what am i gonna eat with this you know not like we're just gonna drink this because it's delicious and it got x points and 
I made a lot of money on Wall Street this month, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, though, that's the beauty of DTC is people are like, I don't care. We like, we like, we like Andy, Nick, and, 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 and Vanessa's wines. We, we just, you know, that's what you want. Yeah, and we've been very fortunate. We have a very loyal mailing list. People have been around for a long time yeah. buying the wines because they know the wines. They can trust us. They like it. You know, they, they can literally call me or email, which happens all the time, Saturday nights, 8 p.m., busy. <laughs> you know, which is fine. And uh, it's and that's where I want it. So, I, I, you know, the critics are uh, important because they do yes. bring awareness to new consumers. Absolutely. And they, they provide some, you know, validation, et cetera. But, um, you know, it's important also for us to stay in touch. So what's the deal with uh, the West Co the West Sonoma Coast Vintners? Because you're a founder. Yeah, so basically I was sitting around after one of those trips where people said I have enough Sonoma Coast wine, I don't need yours. And their Sonoma Coast wine came from Carneros or Sonoma Mountain or whatever. And I was moaning with another guy who made wine out there at the time. He was the owner winemaker for Red Car. His name's Carol Kemp. Mm -hmm. And Carol and I were saying, man, this is, you know. And we said, well, let's, let's, let's do something about that. And so we invited uh, four other winemakers from the region, and uh, the six of us uh, started the West Sonoma Coast Vintners in 2011. And the idea was, let's get together, drink one another's wines, open it up to people who grow grapes in <coughs> the region that mm -hmm. we're going to define it. We define it kind of as a broader, wider region because we didn't really know. I mean, like, I know Annapolis region really well. They knew <coughs> their regions really well. But we didn't know one another's at all. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we started having tastings and seminars, and we threw festivals out in Occidental and all kinds of fun stuff. And then around 2015, we put an application for an AVA. It took seven years to get approval, uh, which is the second longest it's ever taken, the longest being the Fort Ross Seaview AVA, in both cases because one winery, the only dissension came from one winery in both cases, and he happens to be a, a cantankerous lawyer. So we had to pay consultants and lawyers to argue point by point against him because we had hundreds of people from every part of the wine business saying, yeah, the Sonoma Coast is a travesty. <laughs> but we had to do that. And, uh, you know, eventually the TTB, which is trying to be conservative and yep. not, you know, create any enemies or litigation, uh, finally said OK and gave it to us. So it's a members, uh, winery member driven organization. Um, the founders actually are losing their founders' positions next month, uh, where we've always been on the board, and now it's it's you know we have a board of eleven wineries and mm -hmm. forty or so members, and <coughs> we're doing a tasting uh, tomorrow for trade, a seminar, and then a, t uh, a trade tasting, and then a c two consumer tastings tomorrow night at the French Cheese Board. And uh, the idea is, uh, along with that, uh, we the new AVA needed a new AVA map. Mm -hmm. And so Venice, uh, Antonio Galoni's uh, media operation, makes these really great maps. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they made a map for the West Sonoma Coast Vintners. They made one for pay. They made one for other members as well. And so Antonio uh, will, will present his map, and we'll also do a seminar on the West Sonoma Coast uh, and then taste. Sweet. Can't wait for that. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And so, but also, you are, you're, you're an involved man. Sustainable Food Initiative at UC Berkeley. What's the Sustainable Food Initiative? So, uh, so when I went to, to to Haas in the late '90s, the entrepreneurial spirit was happening. It was all you know, 
I this or I that or dot com. That was the first first dot com. First wave. Yeah, man. I mean, they almost didn't let me. In, so there's. Not, I went there for the entrepreneurship course, right. where you can write your business plan, all that kind of stuff. And they, I went to the entrepreneurship class, and the first day, I'd say what I'm doing. The professor's like, "That's not an entrepreneurial venture. There's no like three year." Cash What's your out, exit liquidation. Strategy. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you don't have to get round. You're going to be in this a. for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> don't you want your children to eat, man? An exit strategy is the now, bank there, takes And there it, it is. <laughs> sustainable food initiative. I got to feed my kids. Right. <laughs> Hardly sustainable. I'm in the wrong, wrong one. But uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, he almost didn't let me write my business plan. I had to go to the dean and say, look, this is an entrepreneurial venture. But it, uh, they have a very good entrepreneurship program there. And so. Um, I, you know, I was also interested in the environment back then, so I helped start a uh, social responsible business club and a wine class and that kind of stuff. And so then, you know, fast forward 15 years, uh, I'm talking to the people in development there, and they're like, yeah, we want to try to help incubate companies that are developing food companies that have some kind of social uh, uh, quality to what it is that they're doing, some... some uh, driving force that is making and so of course this is all happening with the alternative meats uh, i was like yeah so it's like beyond meat and all that stuff. yeah exactly and as well as like organic this or that i yeah. when i worked for consorcio uh they got purchased by annie's organic that, and that, so yeah that was a, a that's whole other thing too i mean it's like the wine business like it's like oh this organic thing's taking off so craft buys like annie's and right. shit like that man. well uh, to be honest you know it wasn't so pure before that yeah either I mean, well i mean and that's a whole another I mean, we, we were, we, you know, when I was working at this company, it was like all natural. And I remember saying to them, I was like, what does that mean? Well, that like, well, means you, nothing. Don't you, don't, <laughs> that's when people get mad. Some, some people get mad when I say, na- you know, natural wine means nothing. Yeah. Per yeah. se. I'm you got to actually mad. know the fucking winemaker and the vineyard. Like that actually means nothing. You can just say this is natural wine. Yep. Anyway, those people don't really listen to podcasts because they hate me. <laughs> Don't even get me on natural wine. We're, we're going to go off. No, I know. Listen, man, I, I, I'm like, because like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm a sales and marketing guy. I also, also went to law school. I'm like, that means nothing. That's so fucking vague. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, literally like, and I, I tapped to digress since we started. Well, like one of my, I, for like one week, I was like kind of being super snarky and I did a couple of memes and my best ever, like got over 200,000 views was like, it was like when someone walks into a fine and rare wine store, asked for natural wine, and the guy had like a ponytail. It was a scene from High Fidelity, and he's like, get your patchouli stink <laughs> out of my fucking store. And people were like, you're being, I'm like, no, dude, because somebody read an article in Vogue about natural wine, and don't come into the fucking store that sells DRC, which is probably more natural than the fucking natural wine you're going to pay $15 for. Yeah. Ask it for natural fucking wine. Yeah. Sorry, I had to rant. I'm, the Fs came out on that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I said biodynamic means something. There's 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 terms that mean something. That means nothing. What is that? Craft, natural, macro. I mean, craft's been using the word natural forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so was Annie's Organic, and so was Consortio and all that. Like, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. Um, or, Annie's Organic-ish. <laughs> Ish, right? Because um, like, it, it feels that way. Yeah, it's but with sustainable food. So yes, yes. So the idea is incubate uh, businesses yep. that that business school students that actually we're gonna that are going to try to achieve some kind of social mean social ends, and in this case, they're all food based. Damn, this wine is so companies. delicious. On those, man. Um, and so you know, I mean, I we were 
organic farmers for 15 years before we got certified because we just did what we did. We, you know, we, we quote unquote farm another terminology that, you know, so basically my brother and I are both allergic to capital letters. So, you know, regenerative agriculture, (laughs) natural (laughs) wine, biodynamic, like we don't like the capital letter things. Yeah. Uh, cause I, cause a lot can be a lot of marketing can be manipulated. And it's also just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think oftentimes used to try to say I am better or to help yep. step on something. Yep. And that's not really what this is about. Yep. So like we've always farmed organically. We only got certified when basically I was tired of saying to people, trust me, we're organic I farmers. know, right, exactly. And I was like, okay, fine, we're just going to get certified. And my right. brother was like, oh, okay. So, yeah. you know, we had all the records, so we were instantly stamped. We didn't have to wait four years. Yeah. And like we don't ever really talk about regenerative agriculture, but hey, do we not till? We make compost from our own stuff. Uh, you know, we run on biodiesel and solar power and we plant, you know, our cover crops are all things that are host to beneficial pests that eat the bad pests, like blah, blah, blah. That now has a term, which is also kind of vague. Yep. Um, and frankly, we don't really need to regenerate our soils. We didn't ruin them in the first place. <laughs> so, you know, that that's another thing. That's why my brother really bristles out. He's like, I don't have to regenerate. Right. You know? <laughs> I've always been farming in a smart way, you know, so you should never get my brother on those topics. Don't really don't get him on biodynamics. Anybody who's listening to this, who's heard my well, brother. Well, someone, oh my God, Woo. I had Sam Couture on and, and, um, you know, and and and, and uh, you know, Phil farms whatever however he farms, and uh, but we were talking about the, and I'll say again, the cult aspect that people don't understand about biodynamics. Rudolf Steiner, fucking, I'm like, you, 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 you don't. Hmm. Okay, listen, I'm all for, it, but you, you need to study who Rudolf Steiner was. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's it. like, like fucking people are on these trains and they don't know the train. The track they're going down. <laughs> I think where it all comes from is intentionality. Yes. You know, the, the, the expression is biodynamics is great because it means you have to pay more attention because you can't use chemicals yeah, to wax stuff yeah. so you're in your vineyard yeah, more often. I love that. What's wrong with that? That's, no, that's smart. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not a religious person, yep. so I keep my religion out of my farming. It, exactly. That's all. And people don't know. And that's my problem. I fucking am. And that's how I got into wine. And you said this very early on. You're like, I could never know this. It's always intriguing. But I do go down these rabbit holes, and I know shit. And I'm like, oh, wow. That's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That part's kind of weird. Yeah. Stirring 30 times <laughs> yeah. counter. Yeah. 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 I'm like, that. that's, that, that's come on. The, the manure and the, the horn of a goat, That that's, that's fucking... I mean, it's dynamiz- you're dynamizing. That's, that's straight out <laughs> of double, double toil and trouble. <laughs> As we're in, Hall- in the Halloween season. <laughs> All right, man, listen, we oh, we just didn't get more, just getting warmed up. But um, we're going to uh, play a little game. And then I'm going to ask you one more question. And I'm going to release you to do what you do in New York and just help people understand how great your wines are. <laughs> so <clears throat> slap. Lick, fondle. And I'm just going to make it easy because I know you make these three grapes. <clears throat> one you slap, <clears throat> one you lick, and one you get to fondle. Um, Chardonnay, Pinot, and Syrah. Who you slapping, who you licking, who you following. That's hard for you. And it's never designed to be easy. I'm slapping Pinot Noir. I will admit it. Pinot Noir, I like but I don't love. Um, I'm licking Chardonnay. Mm. It is my favorite white wine. Mm. Um, And I don't 
seem to get enough of it, so I'm licking every single drop out of the glass. <laughs> and you wouldn't think that I would say fondle for Syrah, because that seems like a soft approach to what is such a visceral grape, but yeah. it is my favorite grape. I'm mm. not supposed to have a favorite grape. I like all the wines. I know, but we. But every, like, I, I, that's like, you're not supposed to have a favorite kid. Everybody does. Sure every, do. I mean, like, I mean you're, not, you're, not exactly, you're not supposed to. But I mean, like, everybody, everybody I know, like, people are like, what's your favorite? Grenache. But I drink everything, but fucking, I'm... Every time I go to the cellar to get a Pinot Noir, I come up with Syrah. Yeah. And <laughs> it's because it doesn't hit me just in the brain. It also hits me in the belly. Yep. And yep. I like only cold climate Syrah. I do not like big fruity Syrah, blue fruited stuff. Um, but fondling takes longer. Yes. So that's why I want to fondle it. I just want to hang it. out with it. Yep. And I just want to be with it all the time. I love it. I love it. Last question, Andy. Uh, what are you most excited about in the future? Yeah, so I'm also in my mid-50s, and our vineyard's now 25-ish years old, um, so it's really in its kind of sweet spot. Yeah, I feel like the wines, the past couple of vintages, the 23 vintages we're having right now is going to be dynamite. Uh, I mean, just a great vintage, very cold, so like the wines are stellar. So I feel like there's a lot of good wine coming from us, so I'm really excited to sell those wines because I like selling wine. And I like turning people on mm -hmm. to our wines. Mm -hmm. And it just makes your life so much more fun when you have <laughs> wine that you like to sell. Uh, I couldn't imagine selling wine I didn't like. I mean, I don't know how people do that who have to do that. Oh, that'd be terrible. That's kind of why I don't sell wine, because you're confined to one book. I mean, you can have a good book, but still, there's always going to be something over there, man. Right. Or when, you're, or when your manager tells you, you're like, yep. hey, we need to sell, you know, these three pallets yep. of this. Yep. You're like, mm, not me. Not me. <laughs> you better go talk to him. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, from a professional perspective, that's, that's my goal is I'm looking forward to all the good wines that are coming down the pike. I've started exporting a little bit more, uh, mm. pretty much just fun. Like yep. I just got back from Mexico. Nice. Mexico is a nascent wine uh, country. Yep. Uh, but I went for the food in Mexico City, which is mm -hmm. for the listeners who have not gone to Mexico City yet. It was my first time, and it's bananas. Of course, the street tacos are great. Mm -hmm. But some of the high-end restaurants are just, oh. Mm -hmm. I went to Quintana, that place is on fire. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, you know, personally, I'm, my, my kids are young teenage boys. I'm looking forward to Watching them grow. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. Annie, thank you so much, man. I'm glad we got to do this. Shout out to Brooke for making this happen. Thanks, Thank Brooke. you, Brooke. <laughs> Turns out MJ's a good guy. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm good to drink wine with, man. I can tell you that much. <laughs> Thanks so much. Tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing. Yeah, so uh, Pay Vineyards, P-E-A-Y Vineyards.com. Uh, you can join our mailing list. Uh, we sell most of our wines through uh, our mailing list. Um, got a bunch of videos, website, uh, has a bunch of photos and things of that nature. Also, uh, if you're living in Manhattan, uh, Skernick does a great job selling wines here. Uh, tonight I'm doing a dinner at Cork Buzz. I'm doing a dinner Thursday at Silver Apricot. Um, so I'm around, we come in out of town and we always do dinner. So, uh, join the mailing list and hope to meet y'all. Nice. And for all the listeners, don't forget to check out the show notes for each episode. You'll find info on the wines we drank, uh, links to cool things we discussed in the show and so much more. And until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, deep thinkers, and all you wine drinkers. This is your boy MJ saying peace. Go Warriors. And go Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. 
And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.